It's Friday, January 20th, and Alec Baldwin might never be able to cut this scene. We start here. Prosecutors announced they intend to send one of the nation's most famous actors to prison for years. He shouldn't have even had a real gun. He should have been using a rubber, a plastic gun. What he's charged with and what each side could say at trial. They said we could blow past our debt limit. Well, guess what? We did. If the U.S. can't pay back the people who it owes money to, that is a major problem. The U.S. now turns to extraordinary measures. We'll explain what that actually means. And she was the idol of young progressives around the world, only her constituents didn't feel the same way. I think it's disgraceful forcing vaccination on people who don't want it. The surprise resignation of Jacinda Ardern. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. It's been more than a year since a movie very few people had heard of shook the entire entertainment industry. Santa Fe County Sheriff's deputies at the scene of a movie set and Bonanza Creek Ranch. There is a church on set that appears to be specifically taped off. He said someone was shot. Two people accidentally with one gun. Gunshots as on movie set, Bonanza Creek Ranch. In October of 2021, news started breaking there had been a tragedy on the set of a Western movie called Rust. It was being produced by Alec Baldwin, who was also starring in it. So was it loaded with a real bullet or one? I I cannot tell you that. Okay. We began hearing a gun used in the movie had gone off and had somehow killed someone behind the camera. 42-year-old Helena Hutchins was airlifted here to UNM Hospital yesterday and later died of her injuries. Then we learned this Colt 45 that was pointed at the camera right at crew members was held by Baldwin himself. How's it going, sir? Um, so I, my understanding, um, you, were, you were in the room when the lady when someone I was, was shot? The gun, yeah. Okay, all righty. Um, now, obviously, on a movie set, there are not supposed to be any live bullets. Some films use fake guns that could not even conceivably fire around. Others, like this set, use real guns that fire blanks. Baldwin apparently was given a gun by an assistant director who's supposed to get that from a professional armorer, someone who keeps them in a safe, closely inspected, so that when the first AD announced he's handing Baldwin a, quote, cold gun, everyone on set should know there are no live rounds present. I'm like the only female armorer in the game, and I just up my whole entire career. In the coming weeks, Baldwin gave several interviews, including to ABC News, always driving home the same points. This movie made me love making movies again. I really thought we were onto something. This was the saddest thing that had ever happened to him on any movie set, and that there was nothing else he could have done. Well, I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. He maintained he hadn't even squeezed the trigger. It had just gone off in his hand. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. To most of us, that's where it stayed for more than a year. But yesterday, the district attorney in Santa Fe announced that Alec Baldwin himself will face two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Either the actor should have checked or should have had it checked in front of him before he took the gun. And certainly this scene, as it was taking place, was a rehearsal. He shouldn't have even had a real gun. He should have been using a rubber, a plastic gun. Um, and he certainly was not called upon to pull the trigger. Let's start the day with ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. Dan, first off, what does involuntary manslaughter mean in this case? And where does that rank on like the list of charges Baldwin could have faced here? Well, they've thrown the book at him here. Um, they've basically offered two different possible theories of involuntary manslaughter, 
that a jury could accept in order to find him guilty. One where there's basically just negligence on his part. And, and their point is that it wasn't just the negligence with regard to the gun itself. It was broadly the safety on the set. There were six live rounds on that set and they were they were spread around in places where they would have been loaded into a gun at some point and probably been shot at someone. That and involuntary manslaughter charge is one where Baldwin could face up to 18 months in mm-hmm. prison. But there's a more significant involuntary manslaughter charge that they've also said they're going to move forward with. And and that's one where there was more than just negligence involved in a death. As an actor and as a producer, you can't walk onto a set, hold a gun, point it at someone, pull the trigger, and just just hope that that everything went right. And that one, they basically thrown in what's called a firearm enhancement because there was a firearm used. And for that one, you've got the possibility of a mandatory, mandatory five-year sentence. So if a jury were to believe that it was more than just negligent, reckless, for example, Hmm. that could mean that if convicted, Baldwin could be facing a mandatory five-year term. And mandatory because, like, that's how New Mexico laws Correct. Read, like this particular law. Correct. His defense is pretty simple, though, right? His defense is, sorry, I didn't know there was a live bullet anywhere on set. I'm not the person loading this gun. I didn't know there was a live bullet in the gun or on set. Like, how would this be his fault? So, you know, this is going to be a tough case for prosecutors. They first have to get over a, a judge in a preliminary hearing who's going to say there's enough to move forward. I could see a judge throwing out one of the theories, right? The, hmm. the the more severe of the two and just saying we're going to let it go to trial maybe on the on the uh, the less significant one. But then there's the jury. Um and that's going to be Alec Baldwin's defense. His defense is going to be this was a mistake. How can you possibly blame me? I'm an actor. I was hmm. handed a gun. I was doing a scene. How is that negligent on my part? And this is where Alec Baldwin's role as both a producer and an actor comes into play. Because the DA is already talking about the fact that there were warnings on the set. There were misfires. um, Safety meetings were not taking place. And so there were certain things that everyone should have been on notice that they needed to be doing a better job at. And that that suggests that they intend to use that as part of the evidence against both the armorer and Alec Baldwin. And then the armorer, can you talk about the other people on set? Because there are charges with those folks as well, right? Right. So you've got the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and she is charged with the exact same charges as Alec Baldwin. The assistant director, David Halls, who's the one who apparently handed Baldwin the gun, has made an agreement. Uh, He's going to plead to a charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon, He's going to get no jail time, six months probation, and he's going to clearly testify against the other two. Oh, so he ends up being like a cooperating witness, Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the questions was, whose fault is all of this, right? I mean, everyone's pointing fingers at everyone else. The, you know, the, the, the David Halls is saying, how can you blame me? I was told that the, that the gun was quote unquote cold. The armorer is saying, you can't blame me. There was never supposed to be any live rounds anywhere. 
How is it my fault? Alec Baldwin is saying, how is it my fault? And look, mm. and they all have an argument to make, right? These aren't like absurd arguments. But does it does it hurt Alec Baldwin that for months, for months, he said, I didn't pull the trigger. Clearly the DA says, like, yeah. yeah, you did. That was a really, I think, foolish thing for Alec Baldwin to say, even, even if he believes it's true, for him to have gone out publicly and said, I didn't pull the trigger. No way. No way I would have pulled the trigger. I know better than to pull the trigger. That's my, my training indicates you can't do that. And they get this report from the FBI. It says that this gun couldn't have gone off with someone pulling the trigger. It's almost inviting right. the DA mm -hmm. to charge. We were waiting on that FBI report to show us if that gun was a fully functional gun or not. And what it showed us was that it was a fully functional gun and it did not misfire. It would not misfire. The, the trigger had to have been pulled. So Alec is wrong. It's almost saying, well, boy, if we use your standard, Alec Baldwin, which is, of course, no one would pull the trigger, then and we have evidence now that it must have been pulled, then what else are we supposed to do? Right. For the Baldwin team, good luck convincing the DA that like, they're right. The FBI's wrong. Right. No, look, and they can challenge the FBI report and they will. Um, you know, they're going to say they're going to say the FBI report it does not tell the whole story. Uh, that on this particular weapon, there are questions, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. everything with regard to evidence in this case will be challenged. Three different people, if they had only done their job, we wouldn't be standing here. And those three are? David Hulse, Alec Baldwin, and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Last question for you, Dan. I mean, clearly this day a year ago is going to have huge consequences for, I mean, forget these people's careers. Like the rest of their lives will, will, could very well be defined by this moment. Does this go beyond that, though? I mean, are, are there continued ramifications for, like, broader Hollywood or the film world or for gun safety? You know, I mean, what, what do you think? This stuff doesn't happen very often, right? It's right. not like people get killed on the set of a movie uh, very often. It's happened, um, and there have been people who've been charged. I think that the incident itself was a significant reminder to the movie industry that safety on set matters. And, and not just in terms of someone getting hurt, which obviously is the most important issue, but even as a secondary issue is, boy, we better be careful because we could get sued. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, this case is now so front and center that there's no claiming that, oh, well, you know, we cut corners, et cetera. So, so while I don't think this is going to have a sort of a mega impact, the real impact it may have is on some of the smaller productions where they tend to do lower budget right. uh, films. They tend Is to this shot worth going to exactly. jail over potentially? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and here's the statement from Baldwin's attorney. Quote, this decision distorts Helena Hutchins' tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice. Mr. Baldwin has no reason to believe that there was ever a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the movie set. He relied on professionals with whom he worked who assured them the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges and we will win. And quote, the lawyer for the armorer says Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is innocent and that this has been a flawed investigation from the start. Dan Abrams, thanks so much. Sure, my pleasure. Next up on Start Here, we've hit the debt ceiling, so now what? That's on the other side of the break. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. 
ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. For years, one of the safest bets on earth was a bet on the U.S. economy. We all have credit scores, right? You, me, everyone. It's a rating basically evaluating, you know, if someone lends you money, how likely they are to get it back. If your score is good, people trust you, your interest rates are better. It's great. For years, the U.S. credit rating was the highest it could possibly be. Yes, we borrow a lot of money. Our current debt is north of $30 trillion. But that AAA credit rating meant lenders should never, ever have to worry. Well, in recent years, it's become less of a sure thing that America will always repay its debts. The Congress is concerned about the uh, debt. The people are concerned about the debt. The markets are concerned about the debt. When lawmakers flirted with the idea of blowing past our credit limit without authorizing new loans in 2011, our credit got downgraded then. Like, we hadn't even defaulted on our debts. We were downgraded because we almost defaulted. I believe this is a matter of urgency, that the Congress should act without delay. Well, yesterday, America once again officially reached the end of its credit line. That doesn't trigger catastrophe quite yet, but it sets us closer than perhaps we've ever been before. Welcome back to the week of ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, who covers the Fed and the U.S. economy. She's been very busy. Elizabeth, can you just explain what happened yesterday? Like, there was this deadline. We hit our limit of what exactly? This is a huge number. $31.4 trillion, Brad. So that's 31 with 12 zeros after it. I mean, it's hard to conceptualize just how big of a number we're talking about when it comes to the U.S. debt limit. But the government officially got up against that limit as of yesterday. So now it's taking these so-called extraordinary measures to try to not breach that limit, to not breach the debt ceiling. 
because, as we've heard, if we breach the debt ceiling, then we're in a situation where the U.S. credit outlook could get downgraded again and the U.S. risks defaulting on its debt, which is something that has never happened before in the history of this country. It would be a situation that a lot of economists say would be calamity. It would be a catastrophe. The short answer, though, is that we don't know just how severe those risks are because we've never been in a position as a government where we are not meeting all of our obligations in full and on time. Millions of jobs would be lost. Financial markets would tumble. And it means that the government wouldn't be functioning in the way that it's supposed to for millions of Americans. So I think just important to keep that in context in this conversation. The people who are on the margins, who are the most vulnerable, are the ones who would suffer the most when we put the full faith and credit of the United States government in jeopardy. So many Americans rely on payments from the government for Social Security, for Medicare, for military salaries, for tax refunds, you name it. This is a huge part of our economy. So when we're talking about the government not being able to pay its bills, that's what we're talking about here. And that's why the Treasury Department has gone as far as to take these extraordinary measures now to try to prevent this situation of a default where the government cannot pay its bills. Wait, so so the U.S. incurs like a debt Basically, the debt is like we're going to pay Social Security. Like that's one of the things that are part of the debt. Once we get up to like this limit of spending, we need like new loans because we've already obligated ourselves to pay that. Now we're not going to get those new loans. Like, So what are these extraordinary measures then? What do we do? Right. So at the end of the day, the government does not make enough money to fund all of its obligations. Basically, it spends more money than it brings in. So it has to take out debt to fund these operations. And those operations look like paying people for Social Security, Medicare, all those things we've talked about. So these extraordinary measures are basically a trick, an accounting maneuver that the Treasury Department can use. And frankly, The reality is that these extraordinary measures have become a lot more ordinary in recent years, Brad, because we've seen so many showdowns over the debt ceiling. In the past, there has been bipartisan cooperation to address the debt ceiling, and that's how it should be. It should not be used as a political football. What the Treasury Department is doing, and the simplest way to think about it, is these accounting steps that allow the government to keep borrowing money without actually crossing that limit, without reaching the ceiling. So it's kind of writing itself an IOU for some funds where it would normally invest. And it's saying, we're going to pay that money back later, but instead, Mm. in the interim, we're going to make the payments that are really important to keep the government working, to keep funding, to keep paying those bills. Oh, like instead of your family getting the new loan from the bank, you're like, hey, parents, I just need a few hundred bucks. Like, well, let's do this in the family for a second. Right. So basically, this is a little bit of like a bookkeeping trick. You know, one analyst said the government's not making new investments in some of these funds. So think about funds that the government has for federal workers, health plans for retired workers. It's not like those people aren't going to be able to get access to that money. That's something that the Treasury Secretary pointed out. No retirees or federal workers are going to suffer because of these extraordinary measures right now. We will not be be doing any negotiation over the debt ceiling. I want our side to negotiate with the Democrats in good faith. But President Biden has to also negotiate. He can't say he refuses to negotiate. This is just a way that the government can kind of keep its operations going. It's a short-term solution that buys some time for Congress to try to reach a deal without the U.S. getting to that dire scenario and hopes that Congress can come to a deal before these extraordinary measures run up, which the Treasury Department says is probably going to happen in early June. Could be a little bit later, could be a little bit earlier. There are a lot of wild cards when you're talking about this, and it's hard to pin down an exact date. But when we talk about 
I can't believe I'm asking. I can't believe I don't know the answer to this. When we're talking about like credit <laughs> ratings and like owing people money, who do we owe the money to? Like we keep talking about this debt and borrowing money. Who is the lender that we would be messing with? The simplest answer to that question, Brad, is you and me. Most U.S. debt is owned. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I know it's shocking. You might think it's like China or right, f- you know, other foreign countries. The the majority of U.S. debt is owned by domestic investors. Now, a big portion of that is owned by the Federal Reserve, the central bank. It actually owns that money because of these kind of totally separate operations it's taken to try to stimulate the economy. Different conversation. Equally wonky. We won't go there today. Okay. State and local governments own U.S. government debt, pension funds, mutual funds. So if you have a retirement account, a 401k, that's invested in bonds, which a lot of funds are, you own government debt. You are not expecting to get paid out on that you know, every day. But eventually, a really important part of this conversation about the debt limit is that the government needs to continue to pay investors who hold U.S. debt in the form of treasury bonds. Mm. Otherwise, the whole full faith and credit of this system could be undermined. If the U.S. can't pay back the people who it owes money to, that is a major problem, not just for the people who it owes money to, but for the whole financial system. It's hard to overstate how the entire global financial system really is underpinned by the solvency, the safety of U.S. government bonds. These are seen as some of the safest assets in the world where you can put your money and you can always be guaranteed to get paid back. And if there's a question of that, it really does have ripple effects, not just in the people who own this debt, but throughout the financial system and throughout the broader economy, too. That's why it could eventually mean jobs could be lost if there is this question about, is the government really able to meet its obligations? It's hard to understand how big of an effect that would have on the U.S. economy and on the global economy, too. Yeah, and the risks here we've been hearing for years, the difference now, this time around, is A, we've hit that limit, and B, we've got a new Republican-controlled House that sounds much more comfortable with saying, no, no, like no more loans, even if that creates this upheaval you're talking about. All right, Elizabeth Schulze, really helpful. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad. I always appreciate it. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, it's quitting season for Kiwis, too. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. For the last 24 hours, the world has been absorbing the news that one of the youngest leaders of a nation, Jacinda Ardern, is hanging it up. I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. Instead of running for re-election as Prime Minister of New Zealand, she's resigning. And then my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. This was a shock to many on the world stage, in part because of what Ardern represents. Your Excellency, I submit for your signature a warrant appointing Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister of New Zealand. She became Prime Minister at just 37 years old, and from there became a political rock star. 
For one, she was young. She unapologetically became an unmarried mother. The greatest certainty for business. You're meant to be in bed, darling. It's bedtime, darling. Also, she's like a legit DJ on the side. Oh, this is Jacinda Ardern. I'm obviously a politician, so uh, being a DJ is not my day job, but this is just about sharing some good tunes. She was also completely unafraid of a bold, ambitious agenda. When a white supremacist killed more than 50 people in New Zealand with a pair of AR-15-style weapons, she outlawed those assault rifles across the country, no questions asked. When the novel coronavirus began spreading worldwide, Ardern took the plunge to shut down New Zealand's borders. No one in, no one out. We currently have 102 cases. But so did Italy once. This level of confidence from such a young leader won her praise from like-minded liberals around the world. But while winning over fans is nice, winning over voters is better. And risk being arrested. If you do not move on, you may be arrested. Do you understand? Two years into the pandemic, Ardern finally admitted what many leaders had already been forced to admit, that COVID wasn't going away. And while her zero COVID policies got her acclaim from abroad in a way that China's did not, people at home suddenly struggled to see this prime minister celebrated for her empathy as caring about regular New Zealanders. I'm not against vaccination. Well, I, I am actually vaccinated. Well, I think it's disgraceful um, forcing vaccination on people who don't want it. She blamed her resignation on burnout, on not having enough left in the tank for another term. But polls had already shown victory becoming less and less likely. Many have said sexism and ageism played a role in how people saw Ardern. But now, fairly or not, her departure does raise a question. What are the risks of handing the reins to such a young leader? And what happens when that leader's ambition clashes with voters' patience. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Madeline Wood, Vika Aronson, Iru Ekpanobi, Cameron Chertavian, and Tara Gimbel. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Alyssa Pone, Edward Sakaris, Josh Margolin, and Ibtasim Gwenfood. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. Thank you.